0: Hello, Podcast Movement. You're looking beautiful today. I'm still choosing my favorite person. Uh, kind of gravitating over there.
1: Hey. Welcome back. Podcast Movement Sessions Season 2 continues, and I want you to know that you're all some of my favorite people. I am your host, Joel Sharpton, and in this episode, we're talking about money. Uh, crowdfunding specifically we're talking about crowdfunding the beauty of podcasting is that you can build the show you want to build without any concerns about what a network or production company wants or would allow the problem of podcasting is that building that specialized show means your audience might never draw massive sponsorship but it could draw rabid fans and that's where crowdfunding comes in.
0: Today we're basically going to be talking about funding, sustainability, and growth. A little intro from myself. My name is Jordan Cope, and I work at Patreon.com. I know all of you know what that is, and I'll be very offended if you don't, but effectively it's a crowdfunding site for any creator that does ongoing work. If you have any questions, shoot over to the booth. We'll hang out. You can uh, have a coffee, <laughs> and I'll give you one high five each, no more, no less. Uh, today's a really fun panel. Um, today we're kind of going to be touching on that sneaky little secret of all things podcasting and creativity, finance, funding, money, cash bucks, etc. And to do that, Podcast Movement has gathered four of the sharpest minds in the industry and myself uh, to talk all about funding, sustainability and growth.
1: (laughs) This is a great example of the sorts of panels and discussions that you can be in the room for when you attend Podcast Movement 2017 in Anaheim. Podcast movement has become known for the huge name keynote speakers Kevin Smith last year, Mark Marin in 2015, Dan Carlin this year. But the real value of podcast movement, in my opinion, is often found in panels featuring multiple professionals who, while maybe not household names, are building and growing businesses in and around podcasting. This panel was one of my favorites from 2016's podcast movement in Chicago, and I can't wait to share the best parts. But first, I want to continue the story of Podcast Movement itself. We've heard from Jared Easley about the first discussions, but today we're going to talk to
2: Dan Franks. I'm the co-founder and co-organizer of Podcast Movement.
1: I asked Dan what he thought when the idea for a podcaster-only conference was first floated.
2: Well, I thought it was a great idea because I was one of the people doing the suggesting of it. It was myself and fellow co-organizers Jared Easley and Gary Leland who were sitting at another event that was, I would say, inclusive of podcasters. But the real issue was more than half the attendees there were podcasters themselves. But the programming and, and the focus of the event, I would say, was probably only a third, maybe even less, for podcasters. So there seemed to be a real disconnect between this event's target and who is actually there so that showed us that the the podcast industry was I I guess you would say hungry for something that was more for them about them and by them as we say with the podcast movement uh, catchphrase or tagline so it really was I would say a no-brainer to at least consider the idea of having a conference for podcasters now the non-no-brainer idea was for us to do it. We had ourselves very little experience organizing events. I I joke that the only event i had ever organized in the past was my wedding, and it was very good, but it was obviously a lot different scale than uh, what podcast movement, even in the first year, turned out to be. So my first impression was that it was a great idea, but then once we started actually exploring what it would take, That's when we started getting a little cold feet.
1: Dan wore a lot of hats in that launch phase for Podcast Movement, and he still does. But the funding of that first conference was a special focus of his. We'll get more on that in a bit. But right now, let's rejoin the panel.
0: So first off, we have the wonderful, the internet, Colt Cabana.
3: Hello. Hi, my name is Colt Cabana. I'm a professional wrestler. I've been wrestling for 18 years. That is my job. I was fired by the wwe and i thought i don't have a job anymore (laughs) and then i started podcasting in 2010 and i've been doing that ever since and i continue to wrestle all over the world and bring my podcast equipment with me all over the world and i talk with different wrestlers in the locker room about how and why we do what we do and at first it started out as i needed uh, a platform to tell my story and nobody on television will allow would allow me on there anymore i loved podcasting i love listening to podcasting and so i started doing it with podcasting with no intentions of making any money really intentions of getting my name out there telling my story and hopefully people coming to my wrestling shows it's, you know six years later it's basically a third of my income uh, if not more and uh, and it's changed my life. You know, the, the money that comes in is a third, but then I think all the money after that is also has to do with just the big ball of the brand, I guess, of Colt Cabana that brings in money, money, Whoa. cash money. <laughs> uh, Bob Ruff, how long were
4: you in the WWE? <laughs> he looks it, doesn't he? Right. <laughs> I took an early retirement from the WWE. They didn't they didn't fire me. Huh. Yes. <laughs> So I'm Bob Ruff, and uh, I do have a Casper mattress in my yeah. house. <laughs> I have one, too. It's really nice, right? Yeah, they're amazing, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, it's, good it's the night, really nice. <laughs> my back feels so good. But for some reason, uh, Harry's razors won't send me any razors. <laughs> Harry, I'll like trade they, you. They feel like I won't use them. Okay, I'll trade you an Audible voucher. <laughs> yeah, okay. So sounds great. Yes, yeah, so I host the Truth and Justice podcast, and a little bit about me. Um, I'm a fireman. Actually, was a fireman. I spent 16 years in the in the fire services as a professional firefighter. The last three years, I was the fire chief for the North Berrian Fire Department. And podcasting was a hobby of mine. And in my podcasting career, which I guess I have to call it now. And, and by the way, this all started uh, 18 months ago, less than that. Before I ever did my first podcast, but my podcasting career was launched from the ridiculous, stupid conversations we have around the coffee table at the firehouse. Literally joking for years, like, we should record this. It's ridiculous. Like, these are hilarious, the stupid... Because firefighters, I don't know if you know this, are pretty sick and twisted individuals. <laughs> most of them. And they're, most of them are just a little bit of an <laughs> And so it's a nice combination for some interesting conversation. So for Christmas in 2014, so this not this past Christmas, the Christmas before... I had uh, my mother-in-law still gives me uh, Christmas prizes, uh, and <laughs> you call them prizes? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I feel like I as win as well. when I open them. That's a weird one. <laughs> so, true story. My my mother-in-law, who didn't know what to buy for me for Christmas, gave me two hundred dollars for Christmas. Winner. I want to remind you again that I'm a grown man. Yeah.
3: That was the grand prize. Yes.
4: <laughs> <laughs> money. Yeah, money. With my $200, I bought a a Behringer podcasting kit, uh, which I immediately found out did not have the equipment that I needed in it. (laughs) (laughs) Because what I wanted to do was record like three or four firefighters talking. So then I I went and spent another, I don't know, it was like 80 bucks on a, a new mixer that would withstand four microphones. And on Valentine's Day 2015, so just over a year ago, me and two of my buddies from the firehouse sat in my basement and recorded the first ever off-duty podcast, uh, which was it was our off-duty time, right? Come about May of 2015, May first, my four-year-old son was homesick, and I was sitting home with him and was bored while he was taking a nap, and I was going through my spiral notebook of notes on the serial case, which is it's nuts. <laughs> the what? <thing> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to try and figure it out, right? Jesus. <laughs> And guess what? None of my friends would talk to me yeah. about it or anything after I tried to talk to them also, about it. Oh so guess
3: what? No one ever figured out that case.
4: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> so so I'm sitting there, I thought, you know, there's gotta be people that will talk to me because I don't have any friends anymore because of this case. Uh, so I, I I had this idea, I could start this 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 kind of fan show i 'm going to go downstairs and record this quick episode. I made a quick website and email address and said, "Hey, anybody like me that likes the show, send me in your emails and we 'll talk about it i 'll just talk about it on a podcast and It kind of goes to show the the community network of how podcasting works right so i I threw this episode out there. It was like fifteen minutes long, sounded like <laughs> and just put it out and said hey i 'm Bob Roth, and I like this podcast, and there's got to be other people like me email me well the the first episode it got a couple of strong retweets or something, and then I pulled like four thousand downloads on the first episode, which I thought that's how podcasting goes. Ah. <laughs> it must be the th- the thing. So, so strong re- retweets, yeah, yeah, <laughs> one or two strong retweets, and you're yep, set. You're good. You're set.
3: Did you have a following from like the firefighting community? Nope. <laughs> nope.
4: You're just a guy. Just a guy. Weird. I'm a guy with a microphone in a basement, and which <laughs> I mean, it's it's a funny story, but for all I assume a lot of you were in here trying to figure out how to make this a career and and literally i started as a guy with no following i had 421 twitter followers which i was pretty proud of and uh, (laughs) can you
0: give me some tips after the show to get 421 twitter followers yeah (laughs) i sort of peaked at 160 (laughs) (laughs)
4: yeah So long story short, I started covering the case, and it started the the following started growing and growing and growing. And by the August of last year, it had gotten to the point where I was at that critical point, which some of you may be at, where the podcast is now costing me money. Like like I'm using a lot of bandwidth. I'm I'm, the website, all that stuff was starting to cost me money, and no one was giving me any money. And so I'm sure what we'll get into later is how I went from there, but. On January 1st of this year, I took an early retirement from the fire department, and 100% of my income is my podcast, the Truth and Justice podcast. Money. Yeah. Money.
1: We'll get back to the panel in a minute with stories from Rob Sesternino and Liz Covart. But right now, let's check back in with Dan Franks. You decide you want to build a podcaster-centric conference. You've got a team. What's next?
2: money. Yeah, so the interesting thing about how how we decided uh, to raise funds was that we all kind of came from I guess what you would call the business podcast space. That's where we had met each other online before we met offline was having uh, podcasts ourselves that focused on online business and entrepreneurship. And one of the biggest concepts that you learn pretty quickly in starting a business is this whole idea of proof of concept. You don't want to just dive into anything with both feet before you make sure it's a it's a good idea or somehow test this idea with the with the market. So the that was a no-brainer that we were going to have to do something to not just assume that because we thought this was a good idea for an event that other people did as well. So that's really where this idea to raise funds really came from, was the whole concept of if someone's willing to pay for it before it exists, then maybe they want it bad enough that it's worth actually producing. So that was the biggest, uh, the biggest driver in raising funds was just to prove out that it was something that people actually wanted. So crowdfunding at the time, and this was early 2014, it was definitely not in its infancy, but Kickstarter was not as much of a household name as it is now. Um, certainly people had used it and known of it, and it wasn't unknown. But it was something that none of us had ever done anything on as far as a campaign goes. And I don't think any of us as the founders had even put any kind of uh, investment towards a Kickstarter campaign in the past. So it, the, the idea of using it for this was a little foreign and I honestly cannot remember who came up with the idea but it turned out to just be a genius idea because uh, it it worked so well and it probably could have worked better had we had more experience but uh, in reality, it really just, uh, just clicked. This whole concept of putting the conference idea itself as a Kickstarter campaign and basically telling everyone, hey, here's how much we need to raise to do this event. We want to do this event, but if you guys don't show that you also want this conference to take place by contributing to the Kickstarter campaign, then it simply won't happen. So in that sense, it really did make people put their money where their mouth is instead of people slapping you on the back and saying, great idea, buddy, go ahead and do it. Uh, You know, it says if you want to do it and you want us to have it for you, then you need to fund it yourself. And that really was the idea of crowdfunding instead of anything else. Because sure, we could have pre-sold a few tickets or sure, we could have maybe gotten some small sponsorships. But in reality, we needed to make sure it was something that the community itself wanted before we went anywhere else community first.
1: Hmm. What a crazy idea. You should join the community too, if you haven't already, on Facebook. 5,000 or so of Podcast Movement's past, present, and future attendees hanging out and helping out with questions big and small. Speaking of, here's another one of those big podcasters that's built a great community. My buddy and my favorite survivor, Rob Sesternino.
5: Hi, I'm uh, Rob Sesternino, and my podcast is called uh, Rob Has a Podcast. That's my main podcast. I talk about uh, strategic, uh, competitive reality TV shows, uh, most notably uh, Survivor and Big Brother, which can be kind of a nerdy thing to really spend all my time uh, talking about, but... I got into that a very long time ago uh, that I was on uh, one of the first seasons of Survivor and uh, sort of went and did my uh, time on the show. and then you know f- then after that came uh, and went, I w- was you know working in LA at a production company and eventually I found myself completely out of work. And uh, with no job and and no income. And as I went out and looked for other jobs for somebody to hire me in my free time, which I had very much of at that point, I started the weekly, you know, recap of there was a big Survivor all star season that was on at the time. And also I was podcasting about the final season of Lost at that time, which was the beginning of 2010. And because I was so unemployable that so no one would give me a job for so long, I had a lot of time to really work on the podcast during that first year or so. And the what I was able to learn, like from doing like podcasts and social media, I was able to get like uh, some jobs that, that came out of that. Until the point where I was working of uh, full time again by 2013, and then was laid off from that job, and then went back to doing the the podcast full time that I had started to monetize at that point through. You know, things here and there, but I really made a a real push at the time I decided to do it full time where uh, I am on Patreon, uh, which I find to be a uh, fantastic resource for podcasters. uh, And we um, I'm sure we'll get more into that. I'm also on the uh, podcast one network and that I do uh, podcast full time about that. And then I also launched a uh, scripted TV podcast in the beginning of 2014. Uh, called post show recaps. When I started like podcasting full time, I'm like, oh, this is great because I'll have a lot of downtime because it only takes me this many hours of the podcast. What you don't realize is that when you podcast full time, is that the amount of hours in the day that you devote to podcast will just like the podcast will just fill the time that you have. It's not like you will then just like okay, then you'll have a lot of other time to pursue other interests. Money.
6: Money. 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 <laughs>
7: Hello, my name's Liz Covart. I'm a historian, and I've never quit my day job. I started podcasting because I couldn't find a history podcast I wanted to listen to. I wanted something a little bit more nerdy than was out there. Um, And I said, well, you know, I decided after grad school, the whole professor thing was not for me at that time. So what do you do with a PhD in history? You start a podcast.
5: That's what the P stands for. That's
7: right. Podcast. So I started a podcast because I was like, I know a lot of historians out there, and they love to talk about their work. And the, and the best part is, is nobody else knows what they're working on. So the idea was I would create wide public awareness about the awesome work that professional historians are doing. And because I'm an early Americanist, I study the revolution. I was like, well, I'll do a podcast about early American history. And that's how we got Ben Franklin's World, which is a podcast about early American history. And like many of you, I'm sure it started as a side project and never really thought of it as a job. And then slowly but surely, my partner became a podcast widower and our two schnauzers became podcast orphans because I just kind of, you know, like you said, y- you put a lot of time into it and you get free hours and then you're like, well, if I just do this one thing on my website or tweak this editing in the podcast, uh, it'll all work out. In terms of monetizing, I've also stumbled into that. That was by accident. People just started sending me money.
6: Oh. And I, <laughs> yeah, money.
7: That's so terrible. I, I, <laughs> I had a a couple PayPal notices and I'm like, wow, 30 bucks a month? Like, who is this guy? But he's just like a fan. He loves the show. So he started sending money. So I'm like, all right, I need a concerted effort on how to raise money. And I'm sorry, Jordan, but I didn't like the credit card fees that Patreon takes. So I cut out the Patreon man uh, and figured out a a jury rigged system of how to crowdfund using Patreon-like methods, but using stuff on my own. So I have crowdfunding going. I do have like a a bookstore where we sell the historians' books on the store, like an Amazon affiliate. And then we're also doing some kind of like, I don't want to call it branded content because it's more than that, but I partnered with a a history organization that is also interested in promoting history and the work of historians and how historians work. So we've created a monthly series, and they, they pay me for that too.
1: That's great. Thanks so much, guys. Liz is a perfect example of someone following her passion with podcasting. Looking for another one from our own podcast movement community?
6: Hi, my name is Jenny Wren Stotrup. I am the producer and writer and host of narrative music industry podcast, Gritty Birds, out of X-Ray FM here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I'm a lifetime musician, and um, a few years ago, I first started my first blog. And at the same time, I was learning audio production as a part of my undergrad in political communications and also music. So I didn't do much with it at the time, was just starting to write and explore and have this idea of covering the incredible music scene in the Northwest. And I went ahead and tabled that after a little while and then ended up joining in a band that got quite a bit of recognition in the Portland area. Their name is Shy Girls. They actually just released their second full length? No, it's the first full length. And when it first happened, I was also working on a Kickstarter and releasing my album and was about to jump back in the recording studio and getting interviewed quite a bit. And there were a few interviews during that time that were interesting to me, particular ones that happened from around the globe, where I was able to talk to people that were very unconventional. And I liked the concept. So... One thing that was consistently told to me was, hey, you are really great on radio, you have a fantastic radio voice. And when uh, I finished the album cycle run for my EP, North Star, I wanted to get to know the music industry a little bit better. I was producing uh, festivals and and, and joining some boards, working on booking for a few different companies, including a multimedia company called Banana Stand Media here in Portland, Oregon. I had co-produced my album, and so I was really familiar with editing. It took us six months to be able to do that, and uh, I became pretty great at being able to use programs and found myself wanting to learn a lot more. Um, So I didn't quite have a project. I wasn't ready to jump back into new album and so I got this idea sitting around one afternoon with my girlfriends for um, a podcast that was essentially very much related to the Vanity Fair style questions or um, like 21 questions where it was light and fun and uh, so we we launched the concept of it saying it was uh, a was it 53 questions in the Rose City and uh, it was supposed to be really fun and quick and eventually I kept playing around with it with some other people and some other artists and we realized that in fact while the fun question idea was great I also had a way of kind of getting people to tell me things that maybe they wouldn't normally tell everyone and so the show slowly started becoming more and more intimate over uh, a few episodes and so I really launched Gritty Birds uh, coming up on two years with the idea of it being like let's talk about the grit of people who are fighting to be great at what they're doing in music and the ones who are already successful and what their tips and trades are.
1: It really is a great show and Jenny had a successful first season with promotion from a local magazine and great luck with recording space. After the community and some sponsors begged her to bring the show back for season two, she found herself without a space to record and with growing costs on the back end. How did she handle it? In true rock and roll fashion, She got by with a little help from her friends.
6: I ended up reaching out to uh, the station X-Ray FM, and they loved the concept of the show. So at this point, we had a really basic website, which is still in place. And we had uh, the magazine that was starting to put things out. And then um, we had X-Ray, which allowed me to cover the costs of a production studio and some other sponsors. So the sponsors that brought me back were a DIY label called Self Group. And what we did in trade was we, essentially people helped me, they lent me material, they lent me gear, they lent me time, they lent me editing services to make sure that we were able to get the best sound quality possible, as that was the first time that I'd worked remotely. And then at the station itself, I was able to get access to the programs that I use, as well as training that uh, taught me how to be a narrative producer because i am a journalist myself i write for a couple different publications it just made a lot of sense for me to be able to use something and not just put up straight interviews and also helped bring it back more to our talk format in the radio station itself i'm a big fan of things like this american life so being able to do that was really wonderful
1: jenny's actually got a fantastic story about making her way to podcast movement using crowdfunding we'll hear more from her in a future episode. Right now, back to Jordan Cope and the panel from Podcast Movement 2016 in Chicago.
0: So basically, we're going to focus on a few questions regarding finance, growth, sustainability, things like that. And then at the end, we're going to have a quick Q&A session. So to uh, kick it off, Colt, the internet's Colt Cabana. Yeah. What do you want? You just launched something on the back of a lanyard. Yeah. (laughs) And I hate this picture too, by the way. (laughs) It's very contemplative.
3: I dig uh, it. Uh, yeah, I'm on Howell. Uh, I, I launched a new. So I, I'm a bit of a. I'm a, I'm not a history buff at all, but I'm i I'm the biggest wrestling nerd there is, and I and I guess in in context of it, I love wrestling history. So I started um, a storytelling podcast about. Unique stories in the world of wrestling, the ones that you probably have never heard of, and that's who we tell the stories upon. Uh, this season, I'm working on the guy that was based off of Shrek, the French angel, and he was a, a freak of nature. He was a big wrestling star. Um, there's a, a wrestling company in Japan who uh, only wrestles with people with uh, handicaps. So there's a guy with cerebral palsy wrestling, a guy who's uh, paralyzed from the waist down, and that's a wrestling promotion in Japan. So it's really, really weird stuff called Pro Wrestling Fringe. And so I guess if you want to if we talk about uh, that, yeah, Howell pays me money to do that. My, the Art of Wrestling is the podcast that I've been doing forever. And uh, at first, no money. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, I started getting ads with mid-roll. And then now I'm where uh, Howell, you know, pays me to make these series, which I do. And it's just a flat fee. But I think, like, not not everyone's at that point. So that's... I don't know. I'm just curious. What's the process like getting started there?
0: What was the role into that? And how's the reaction been from the fan base?
3: Well, I'll I'll tell you. I mean, here's. I guess this is what maybe you guys want to know is like I I wasn't getting advertising. I was known in the wrestling world as this wrestling comedian. And I mixed with the world of comedy. So I would all of a sudden kind of. Uh, be a guest on some of these comedy podcasts, and I went to and I went and I, uh, I was in LA wrestling, and I went to be on a show called Sciaro Country with the uh, Randy and Jason Sklar, who are on the Earwolf, uh, you know, network. And I went there, I did their show, and I left. Nobody had any clue who I... the Sklars knew who I were. Nobody had any clue who I was at Earwolf, what I was about, anything about me. And that's the thing about podcasting is that we're all so weird and so niche. But after the episode aired, they said it was the most. Twitter feedback that they had ever gotten, and that's because uh, my fans, uh, you know, I tweeted out. I told my social media, my fans, or I said on my podcast, and then they started mingling with the earwolf people. And the people the earwolf were like, "Who the f- is this guy?" And then they started paying attention to my podcast and offered me, you know, "Hey, would you like to sell?" They were starting the mid-roll Would you like to sell ads? And you know, I was selling ads uh, at first. And if that's something you guys want to talk about, like. I would sell ads at first, and I would sell, you know, like for fifty bucks or seventy five bucks, and I thought I was, I was doing it. I was scamming the system, and then when I found out what you what you can make, you know, if you have high numbers, I was blown away by that. So that's how I got into the kind of the mid roll family, and then from there, I pitched my show to Howell. They loved it, and then they actually just bought all my back archives, so my show's available on there. So that's kind of how it all started. And I'll just say this on on advertising. Or trying to make money. Originally, it wasn't even. I was bartering with people, and you guys all probably have dealt dealt with this. It's just like I was trying to sell merch. That was the way I was going to make money with this podcast, or get people to come. So I, you know, there was a company that made T-shirts, and so I bartered a deal where you give me sixty free T-shirts, I'll give you uh, a minute on my podcast. And then all of a sudden, you know, the sixty shirts. uh, I went and sold the sixty shirts at twenty dollars a piece, which I then I ended up making hundred dollars, right? Thank you. Okay. I don't know the math on that. Money. Whatever it is. Money. 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 I mean money, yeah, yeah. So that's how, like, that was the original, uh, and I... It's easy for me to sit here. I have a team that gets me advertising. But originally, before I had any advertising or any money, that's how I would do it. I would say, how can I use a barter to then sell something to then make money? Because you you are you're gonna gather these people who will love you, who who will follow you. You know, you get these people who who are on board with you. So if you can't find the advertisers who are on board with you, you find something that then you can make or get to then you know sell or help. And that and for me, it's a big. I was like, this is how you can help support. And so that's, you know, I have, uh, I'd i sell 8x10s and I'd sign them, but then I'd make a deal with the company Highspots who would make the, you know, they would send me free 8x10s If I gave them them an ad read and on the ad read, I'd be like, I'd be like, this is high spots. They rule because they're giving me these, these pictures and these pictures, then I can sell to you. And that's how you're going to help support me make a living. It's less like conning people in advertising and more like, Hey, we're all on board. And this is why this company rules. Not because they're just some company, but they're literally, they're helping me make a living and helping me give you this thing that you enjoy about me. And that's why I'm on the Howl.
0: Could I sort of extend the question? Rob, you look ready. I'm always ready. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wanted to extend what is everybody's experience with advertising? Has there ever been negative feedback? Is that a difficult experience?
5: I, I think that the negative feedback has been uh, pretty minimal, at least from my point of view. I, I think that just like, the, I just remember being in that, sp- the, the position that I feel like a lot of people here are in of, like, but yeah, but how do I get that person on the phone? How do I, how do I get, sponsors and you know it's it's really it's really hard because i think that a lot of like these brands tend to work with like if you're not on a network they tend to only deal with a network and i don't know uh what you know if if you guys have any experience with like uh re- reaching out to advertisers independent of a podcast network but it's you know it's very challenging and that's one of the things that i found with you know ending up on a podcast network was that They were going to be handling all of the, you know, it was easier for me to get on a podcast network than it was. For me to ever reach out to sponsors independently and foster that relationship. Like I had a relationship one time with Squarespace uh, early on before I was on a podcast network. But I didn't know what to charge. I didn't know what they were looking for or, or like any sort of pushback. So I found that it was easier to try to find my way into a podcast network than it was to necessarily work with a sponsor directly on my own.
4: Yeah, so I, I kind of went through the same process. I started off, like I'd mentioned earlier, that I was at the point where the podcast was starting to cost me money, and I wasn't receiving any money. And I started to see that, you know, the audience was growing a little bit. And maybe I had some potential to, you know, earn some extra income. At that point, is what I was hoping for. And and so I tried tried to get on it. And I'm I I, I bet a lot of people in this room has anyone here ever tried to get hooked up with like mid roll or an advertising agency, and they kind of ignored you or blew you off? Yeah. Same experience. So, so I, I'm I'm sitting there. I'm, I'm pulling at that point nine or ten thousand downloads per episode. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm kind of a big deal at that point. And so I, I start I start sending emails off to. I mean, so I, I guess the the at the end of the day, it's persistence. But I'll I'll tell you the the process for me. So I'm sending them emails and they come back and well, what are your analytics? And I send them my analytics and I'm thinking, oh man, they're gonna love me. Right. 10,000 downloads an episode cuz I had no idea. I mean that that's a lot. It's huge. I'm not saying it's not, but but in the in their world that's that's not enough. And they they came back to me and said, "Uh, ah, we're looking for bigger podcasts than that." So could, I was like, "All right.
0: Could somebody expand a little bit on what that threshold is? When are you officially big enough to start getting financed?"
4: For me, what they told me and what I've experienced because I've helped a couple of other podcasts get hooked up with midroll because you know this networking aspect of all this is huge, and we can get into that that too. But for me, about about that fifty thousand download per episode mark, seemed to be when mid roll will say, "Okay, yeah, we're interested." I'll uh, cut on that. I, I heard
5: 50, fifty. I heard twenty. Also.
4: I think it depends. Maybe if they feel like there's a potential. Yeah, they wouldn't touch me at twenty either. So as I got a little bigger, you know, when I got to twenty, I was like, "Hey, I got twenty thousand per episode now. What do you think about that?" And they told me to piss off. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was no big deal. So in in that threshold, I'm like, how do I do this? So what I started doing was going after advertisers myself. And so I looked through my very first sponsor was Sean T of Sean T Fitness, who is, by the way, an amazing guy and 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 helped launch my show to where it is now. I was like going through my Twitter feed, like Are there, is there anybody that owns a business or anything that is listening? And and Sean liked my podcast and would tweet about it or every once in a while. So, I, And, and my, my wife, who's a fitness trainer, is a huge fan of Sean T. And so I thought, oh, what the hell? You know, so I, I sent him a message, and I'm like, hey, you know, I, I, I'm looking for sponsors for the podcast. You know, I, I love what you do. My wife's a huge fan of your work. You seem to be a fan of mine. Maybe this could be a good relationship. And we ended up, you know, through a long course of getting to know each other and kind of negotiating a price range, Sean bought 12 episodes of Advertising. Paid up front for twelve episodes of advertising. At that point, I was selling at a rate of uh, fifty. I had fifteen thousand downloads per episode, is what I. Which he got a hell of a deal because that was right before my spike where it went up over a hundred thousand in, in a month period. And so he got all that space for the fifteen thousand rate. So that that's where it started, and it was like right after that. Before you know, when I was in that twenty thousand range, that I reached out to midroll, and again they they turned me down. And so then th- th- what I found is, and maybe a lot of you have experiences, or some of you that are are using it is. When you're in that kind of space in between there where you're you have a lot of listeners but not enough listeners, nobody wants to talk to you. but then when you hit kind of hit it big, then they all start coming to you and so that's what so i I had a huge spike, and it was due to networking, the undisclosed podcast because by that point my podcast had stopped being a fan show, and I was doing active crowdsource investigation into this case and others in the Undisclosed Podcast talked about my show on their show.
1: Hi there. It's your friendly neighborhood podcast host here. Thought now might be a good time to mention that the crew behind the Undisclosed Podcast that Bob Ruff is talking about there, they'll all be at Podcast Movement 2017 in Anaheim. Rabia, Colin, and Susan together hosting just one of the keynote sessions you'll get when you join us this August. All right. Back to Bob and his experience with advertisers. What happened after the undisclosed podcast mentioned you, Bob?
4: And when they talked about my show on their show, in one week I went up and moved up to number two in the overall iTunes chart and passed Serial at, at that point because they were number two. It was short lived. iTunes is a fickle <laughs> when it comes to
2: <laughs> when it
4: when it comes to the, when it comes to the the rankings. I have no idea how it works because like in an hour you'll go like this, up and down, up and down, up and down but i had passed cereal and then all of a sudden everybody wanted to talk to me so then midroll came back to me and said hey we want to work with you and i wanted to tell them to go themselves at that point because i was so but but it was like they were they were offering me income and so shanti fitness got me through bridged me through that gap and i think picking up a sponsor even if it's not for very much money on your own, whether it's bartering like Colt did, or just negotiating with someone, to me, I feel like it added some legitimacy. Because when I started advertising for Sean, then I started getting other listeners, listeners with small businesses that were like, "Hey, you know, I see that you're advertising. Could I advertise?" And and I started picking some of those up, and it was like you said, mid-roll sells at a, it. And ads and ads expensive when you have a lot of a lot of listeners. But it was like, hey, I, you know, what's your normal rate? Well, the CPM rate is this. Oh, can't do that. But you know what? You're a listener. I like it. I'll I'll do an ad for you for you know 200 bucks. I'll throw an ad.
3: Can I can I make a suggestion too? Is a great thing to do is if you're starting a podcast, enter enter an advertisement, and it, if you have to make it up, but you know if you have a friend, no, <laughs> yes. like you know i if you have a friend, like I'll do song of the yep. week. And every week, I do a song of the week. And you know originally, it was you know my buddy owns whatever, Frank's Bakery. Yep. Hey, this is brought to you by Frank's Bakery. You want this? Boom. It gets that in the listeners' heads. Yes. They know it. And then all of a sudden, other advertisers start coming out. They realize this is a thing. It, it conditions your listener to be okay with the idea that you do have advertising. And then it's an okay thing. So it's a great way to start to just get that in their head that, we do advertise here. It's very nice and easy, and then people can start coming out from there.
4: Yeah, I advertise for my tattoo artist for free because it's it's on my cover art. You know, so I I did an ad for him for nothing. I advertised for my cousin who does three D printing free. It was just I didn't have an advertiser that week, and so I did an ad, and then, you know, and set up, at the beginning, set up those affiliate programs, you know, with Audible, you know, anyone can do it, you can go set up to become an Audible affiliate, and read an Audible ad, and you you have that legitimacy sound, because you're advertising for someone, and then you can actually, if people actually use your promo code and go buy a book, you get 15 bucks, and those add up too, so it's, it's all these little steps and persistence along the way. To add
5: to, you know, this point where, if you feel like you're at that plateau where, I'd like to have advertising, but I can't find an advertiser. And if you're feeling like sort of frustrated with that and maybe you don't want to join a podcast network for whatever reason to help find those advertisers, I really do feel like that the the Patreon option or even like the PayPal option of going directly to your audience is a really fantastic way because you're doing all this work to get maybe, you know, a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars a spot from a sponsor and you know you could easily have maybe you know 200 300 listeners who would be glad to support your podcast on a monthly basis and that's just like a whole untapped market instead of doing a commercial for somebody else you're doing a commercial potentially for something that's going to be an ongoing annuity which is going to pay you every single month of the listeners helping to support your creation and i really was very worried when i first started doing that like oh people are going to be pissed off that I'm asking for money and I think that there's an artful way to do it and there's a less artful way to do it but I think I've found that my podcast community has grown stronger because of the bond of people who are crowdfunding the podcast that there's like some sort of ownership that people feel like they like it more because they're they're doing it. And, and, and there's no barrier to entry to start doing crowdfunding for a podcast
4: yeah and I, I did the same thing that was one of the other pieces was to set up a paypal donation and then and actually my listeners and, and talk about uncomfortable so here i am sitting in this podcast is getting big and people are listening and all the it, it's really exploding and at that point i'm podcasting in my shed mm-hmm. in, and i live in michigan and it was getting to be winter. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> "Like, what, what am I going to do now? I can't go back. And we, we, my wife and I have four kids and two German shepherds and two cats. There's literally nowhere in the house where I can do a podcast quietly. So some listeners said, you should put up a GoFundMe. Put up a GoFundMe to build. So I put up a GoFundMe page. This is when I had around 20,000 listeners. Put up a GoFundMe page to build a new studio, which was basically a 12 by 16 shed that I was going to soundproof, insulate drywall, all that carpet, all that stuff. And I thought, what the hell? So I put it out there and I reached out to my listeners and said, listen, what I think really works with podcasting in general to build the audience and get the funding is that personal connection that you have with your listeners. I've always had that. If I'm having a day when I'm podcasting, I tell them I'm having a day. If I if something, you know, whatever it is, they feel that personal connection. I said, listen, I want to this is a dream of mine. I want to do this full time. I need a studio. I can't drop 20 grand on a studio. My wife won't talk to me anymore. If I, if I do something like that. So I put up a GoFundMe page with a goal of $20,000 to build a studio in less than a month. My listeners raised the $20,000, donated the $20,000 to build a studio for me to continue my work. So there, there's if, if you're creative, there's all those options. But I think a lot of it stems from that personal relationship that you have with your audience. Thanks
0: so much for coming.
4: This was fun. Thank you.
0: Thank you to all of our panelists. Uh, thank you to cameramen and sound engineers and thank you to Jordan Cope. He's pretty cool. Uh, that's pretty much everything. Thanks
1: guys. Thanks. Thanks.
5: In 2017, podcast movement is hitting the road as we make our way to the West coast. Spend some of your summer with us at the beautiful Anaheim Marriott in Anaheim, California. Join us August 23rd through the 25th as podcast movement does it better than ever. We'll once again have amazing featured speakers and all of your best podcaster friends from all around the world. All that's missing is you. Register today and we'll see you in California.
1: All right. Is everybody hyped up to get that money? (laughs) Seriously. The important message from today is that there's not one right way to fund your show or help support the expenses you have to create it. For instance, we've heard a lot about Patreon in this episode, but one friend of mine and podcast movement alum is Shell Hamilton. She's recently moved from Patreon for her crowdfunding because of her audience. Here, I'll let her tell you.
8: Hey guys, this is Shell Hamilton, host of the Meditation Minis podcast, and I have played around with some different crowdfunding ideas. Last year, I put up some buttons on my webpage telling people that they could buy me a cup of tea or buy me lunch or buy me dinner, and I put set amounts there that then linked to PayPal. Listeners had some fun with that. It was, you know, a little bit of money here and there, nothing, nothing to pay any major bills with. And then uh, at the beginning of this year, 2017 I actually went ahead and set up a proper patreon page made a video followed you know all of their instructions and I found that even though I did get some people signing up that my listeners at least found it a little too confusing a little complicated I think was uh, the word that I heard the most. So I moved over to Bandcamp and basically I have just started treating the episodes like little songs and people can download them in an ad-free version for a couple of bucks or they can subscribe to all of them for I think at the moment it's $10 a month. Again not a ton of money coming in from those areas. I actually got more on my pre-roll ads that I have playing through my host, but it is growing. And uh, I am thinking this year of seeing what I can do to try to move my podcast into being more of a fully listener supported show. Don't know if that is going to happen completely, but it is certainly something that is worth looking into and, and exploring in greater
1: detail. So Patreon or PayPal band camp or bake sales just do what works for you your show and your audience because in the end it's all about your community or as Liz Covert put it
7: one thing that everybody has in common is community and you heard that raised by Anna Sale and Kevin Smith and the other speakers this morning it's like when you can't find an advertiser or you need help you reach out to your community to do it and it's through the, my community that I found out that all of a sudden there's these little new businesses now where people with sales experience and podcast experience who know how to market, which is great because I don't really know how to do that, actually will take you on if you don't hit that 50,000 downloads per episode rate. And I think I saw a couple of them vending in the in the area. So it's a changing landscape too. So just because something seems impossible now doesn't mean in like three months from now, it, it won't be possible.
1: My special thanks this episode to Liz Kovart, Shell Hamilton, Jenny Strata, Rob Sesternino, Jordan Cope, Bob Ruff, Colt Cabana, and Dan Franks. I'm your host, Joel Sharpton, and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the Podcast Movement Sessions. Don't forget to join us on Facebook in the Podcast Movement community, and definitely join us in Anaheim, August 23rd through the 25th for Podcast Movement 2017. Goodbye, everybody.